Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is leading inventory attack teams with my friend Richard Lebovitz. Richard is the CEO of Lean DNA. That's L-E-A capital D-N-A, a purpose-built analytics platform for inventory optimization. Our whole business is dependent on inventory, but managing inventory is very complicated. Inventory attack teams attempt to drive an effective, sustainable process to attack the biggest daily inventory optimization opportunities across the supply chain. Lean DNA supports inventory attack teams by arming them with a process, analytics, and actionable insights. So check out my conversation with Richard. How's it going, Richard? Great, Joe. Glad to be here. I hope I didn't botch your name. Richard, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Yeah, my name is Richard Lubovitz. I'm the CEO and founder of Lean DNA. We're actually based here in Austin, Texas, and excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here. We blabbed too long on the before we hit record because we have a similar background. We we walk some of the same hallways. Richard, you, you founded a company called Lean DNA. One word. And what does Lean DNA do? We're a inventory and optimization platform that's purpose built for factories to help with improving on time delivery by reducing critical shortages, while at the same time optimizing inventory so you have that optimal level where you have the right parts to the right place at the right time. And so our goal is to help improve that delivery while reducing days of inventory, but more importantly, doing it with a better use of your team and your people. Yep. Someone was on my podcast. I did a podcast with me very few years ago, and they said, everything is inventory. Everything is inventory. And you go, that's just the inventory guys making their job bigger than it is. But there is so much truth to that statement. Everything is inventory in our businesses. If you sell something, inventory is everything. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and our, our take is there's a lot of areas within this inventory optimization, supply chain, manufacturing space. And a lot of what you know we try to focus on is how do we make sure you have that right supply? So when you have these more modern, lean factory operations that have evolved over the last 20 to 30 years, let's make sure they got that fuel to help have that material to execute when they need to. So huge area of opportunity. Yep. I worked for a forecasting company, a sales forecasting company. It was out of Silicon Valley. I only worked there for probably six months. And I remember when I met the CEO, he was in Detroit and he said, Joe, the worst thing that can happen with forecasting is you forecast too little and you don't have enough inventory to sell. And I said, yep. He goes, except if you buy too much inventory and you can't sell it all. He goes, that's bad. Which is worse? He goes, both. (laughs) And he goes, and by the way, he goes, you never seem to get the right inventory amount. It's never, we forecasted 10 and we sold 10. Life is good. Nobody asked for an 11th one. (laughs) So we are always in the sales and inventory space. The uh, sales group and the ops group is always playing this delicate tug of war or dance or whatever you want to call it that never is perfect. 
what's also a challenge right now is when you extend that to those suppliers, that's where it even gets more complicated because at the manufacturing, you're exactly right. We're, especially over the last couple of years, we've shifted from let's bring in whatever we need to, no matter what, even if we don't need it today, let's just get that material because supply chain has been such a challenge. But when you start to look at what manufacturing is really trying to do, it's all about the right parts, right place, the right time. So when you've been expediting parts that are critical, but at the same time, go ahead and bring those materials, even though I don't need it now, but go ahead and bring it in. What's happened is you've seen this growth in excess inventory, but more importantly for those suppliers, what people don't always think about is that if they're making too much of what you don't need, that's eating to their capacity and ability to deliver what you do need. And so that alignment right now is starting to really show it's the it's ugly head or the challenges where we need to always maintain that alignment because obviously not having enough is a real problem, but having too much is not only a problem in terms of the factory's inventory and the cash, but it means those suppliers misuse their capacity and their material to make what you don't need. And that's a problem as well, especially today where things are really a challenge when you start to think about the connected supply chain. Yep. A few things I want to talk to you about today is perishables for one. And I know one of the things people always will say is, oh, you mean like food? It's so much more than food. I, I live here in the Midwest, Michigan. It is now, it is almost the end of September here. So Am I not going to buy a new pair of shorts until next spring? If somebody just brought in a whole bunch of shorts to my local store, that's not good. And Halloween stuff the day after Halloween is worth very little. Christmas stuff the day after Christmas is not worth much. And by the way, we have now, I've noticed we have this multicultural country. There is every holiday under the sun at the store. Somebody has to figure all that out. And again, the perishable stuff, but also... We're being asked, the supply chains provide most of the greenhouse gases that we're trying to reduce. A lot of that, a lot of that sustainability can be, goals can be met by not building a whole bunch of stuff that you put in inventory for six months or a year and then throw out. Exactly. It's, it, when we look at part of the problem that we solve, the enterprise systems and planning systems and BI tools have done a great job creating a lot of visibility, Joe, in terms of information, which is great, right? I can see my problems. I can see where things are. But when you think about the role of a production planner and then a buyer of material and then the supplier, the, the, even though the information is all centralized and you can see it, the decision making is still very siloed. And so when you think about a factory and their suppliers, those are factories themselves. And it becomes, and then you take that down to another tier, which is another level of factors. I know you worked in automotive, right? So if you think about all those tiers, inventory is really a reflection of this disconnect or, or when the demand and supply is not aligned or it can't be aligned because of constraints, now you need inventory. So when the more they become misaligned or you don't really understand those capacities, inventory tends to grow. And the more you can create alignment, uh, collaboration and prioritization, the inventory starts to come down. So this whole area can really start to impact sustainability and inventory by really focusing on that alignment and the prioritization of those different areas. Right now, they're not only disconnected, but the complexity has grown around product configuration, the globalization of supply chains. And so because of that, it's become a real challenge and the growth in inventory is just becoming a reflection of that kind of misalignment. Yep. 
Exactly. So Richard, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started Lean DNA. And then also answer, why did you start Lean DNA? What hole did you see in the market? Yeah, so a little background. I, I was born in California, but then grew up in Texas, went to school here at University of Texas at Austin. My degree was a mix of mechanical engineering, but computer science. So I always had this passion of the industrial side and also building systems to help bring it alive and actually started my career at Frito-Lay building some of the more modern automated factories and even having worked in automotive and industrial products I always feel like that food industry is one of the more interesting automated area because areas because you're shipping air. People don't always think about it, but there's all this logistics and movement, but it's very perishable products, but you're shipping air. And so it's a it was an exciting area for me. But then after that, I actually went and did a startup out in the Bay Area, which ultimately led me to join um, a Japanese firm pretty early in my career. It was probably in the mid-90s or so. But at that time, it was interesting because lean manufacturing was really starting to take off. And so I joined a Japanese firm really focused on process automation, deploying lean methodology. But as I was working in probably 10 different countries all over the world, I was always looking at what was happening and what we were doing. And I'm thinking, God, we can automate that. We can do it better. Why do we have all these spreadsheets? And so this kind of passion for systems really came alive. And I started a company called Factory Logic out in the Bay Area. And it was really focused on the inside the four walls of the factory and taking a lot of the lean methodology that tended to be that was being implemented, but the support of it that was very manual and very spreadsheet driven. We, we were building tools to automate that from electronic Kanban or how do you do what they call hijunka leveling or scheduling within the factory. We started to build tools that automated. And then ultimately that company I started called Factory Logic was acquired by SAP. And so that yeah, then which was great. And but then after that acquisition, I actually went back to work with my Japanese firm and started to work with companies all over the world. And what I then saw was that the factories were becoming much more modern and more lean. And so what what started out was with something that my Japanese partners and myself were teaching people about now was very well understood. Everybody was doing it. But as they were deploying it and and had success. I remember something real clearly in a factory over in the UK where we had built this very modern lean assembly line, but we were constantly having material delivery issues. And it really started to resonate was just looking forward where you could see lean was taken off, factories were being more not only lean, but more automated. But yet if we didn't deal effectively with the supply chain delivery issue, all that effort, all that automation, all that innovation was just going to come to a halt when you didn't have the materials when you needed it. And so as we started to really work to solve that through systems and sometimes working with companies directly, what I started to notice is that these problems that we were solving as we went from company to company, industry to industry, it was a lot of the same exact issues. And we were helping companies build, at the time, their own internal system to go solve it. And we ultimately just said, there's got to be a better way. Why don't we build one purpose-built analytics platform that can connect to kind of any ERP system and then solve this problem in a skill, scalable way? Because it wasn't like unique to any one of these companies. It was very consistent, the problems that we were solving. And that's ultimately what led to starting LeanDNA. We started a little about a little under 10 years ago, 
Uh, but then since then, we've grown to be de- grown the company. So we're now we're deployed in about it's about 28 countries. Wow. Um, in industries from automotive to industrial products to uh, aerospace and defense is a big one, uh, medical devices, and not only uh, deployed to those manufacturing sites, I think it's a little over 450 manufacturing sites now are using LinkedIn and it continues to grow. But we're also deployed to over, well, really thousands of suppliers that are connected to those factories. So that vision that I talked about earlier, where you have these silos of operations that are somewhat uh, disconnected, at least from a decision-making prioritization perspective, how do we connect those? And, and that really vision that we started the company with is really starting to take hold, especially over the last couple of years where, and, and I know, Joe, you probably saw this five or 10 years ago, supply chain was not on the news every day, right? There was a, I remember driving into the office and on NPR, they were talking about the bullwhip effect. And I'm thinking these are stuff we were teaching companies about 20, 25 years ago. Now it's on national public radio. So now it's in the news every day. So I would say my mother-in-law actually understands what I do now, <laughs> where she, I would always visit them at Christmas time. And now, what do you do again? And I'm trying to explain what we do and why it's important. But now I think everybody understands it. So I have two daughters and they were talking one time in the car about I think it was Kylie Jenner, one an influencer. She had this makeup line and she was making lip gloss or lipstick or something. And they said, and it's going down the exact same assembly line as this $5 lipstick. And she, hers is $30 or $50 or whatever. And I was thinking, first off, we have that my teenage daughters had visibility into that. Secondly, the idea that they understand how supply chains would work at least. And I joke about it. I remember the first time I heard the term supply chain, somebody had called me. I was in automotive at the time and they were recruiter called and said, yeah, blah, blah, blah. This company just needs a really good supply chain guy like you. And I was like, what am I? (laughs) Like, I didn't say it. I thought it though. Like you're talking to a recruiter. You don't want to say I'm not qualified. I thought if I say, I don't know what supply chain is, I might not be qualified for the job. But I called another recruiter, a friend and said, what the hell is supply chain? He goes, oh, it's what you do. I was like, I'm in engineering. I work with suppliers. That's different. (laughs) Not really. But I want to get to leading inventory attack teams. But first I want to talk about some of what I know are common challenges that inventory attack teams would get involved with. Now, if you're not day-to-day in all of this, we're all consumers. So when you go to Costco, you notice Costco has a lot fewer SKUs than Walmart and or Meyer, which is I live in the Midwest. So we have Meyer. You'll go to, if you go to Aldi, Aldi has much fewer SKUs. Trader Joe's, much fewer SKUs. I like Target's grocery store. It's curated. It's smaller, much fewer SKUs. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that some companies say, you know what? We are going to uh, appeal to consumers with the products that they want, but we're going to pick the right product and we're going to do really well on our inventory management. And I'm going to give you what your two cents on this. While other companies, and by the way, Walmart's in, always been incredible in their inventory and that was one of their the reasons they did well from the beginning. And you notice how they say always low prices. The advantage of saying always low prices is 
I don't have to, if I have a sale on something and I say, oh, I had a sale on, on ham from this time to this time. And somebody says, oh, good for you. Yeah, but now I don't have year-to-year date data because this is now tainted. So I think we're starting to see companies, very successful companies, especially in the retail space, who say we are going to we are going to use some operational where the operations drive our service offering. Am I right to say that? I do think you you see a lot of that, and it's a good strategy at that kind of retail location. And, and I've seen that as well, Joe. What I would get everybody to think about is when you look at the factories, though, from their perspective, the that same Traeger grill at Costco, when you look at that at Home Depot, is slightly different because they want a different SKU number because maybe the label's different or the button's in a different position. Something's different about it. So even though they've targeted the retail stores with a much smaller number at the factory level, they're actually seeing a lot of writing. You're seeing that in home appliances and grills and everything across the board. So that's one thing I would say that it is true at the retail side, but the manufacturing, they've seen growing level of complexity because that one little difference that marketing loves to create a unique SKU for that vendor, the factory that makes it has to treat it as its own individual product. And then also, obviously, when you look at other sectors from a manufacturer, when you're making, whether it's aircraft and aerospace and defense we work or industrial refrigeration systems or pumping systems, that's where we've seen a lot of growth in complexity, which again is putting a lot of pressure on the factory. So the consumers do see that target. I think it's very effective and I can understand why it makes sense. But at the, the factory level, when you look at it across all retail, uh, especially with what's happening with Amazon and things like that, there's a lot of exciting things happening on the distribution and retail side, but all that's created a tremendous pressure and complexity in manufacturing supply chain. How do we actually deliver that? Yep. And I will say, uh, I don't have nearly your knowledge of it, but I was a value stream mapping facilitator and we were bringing lean and we were using it in automotive and not just in the, within the four walls of the factory, but also the entire supply chain. And I said to you before we hit record, we had all sorts of different data inputs and we were trying to figure out from order to cash, how do we get this to be faster better, cheaper, right? That's the goal. And you you mentioned some of the Japanese words. I, I, I sometimes struggle with some of the lean terminology when people would say, oh, I'm your, I'm the sensei, which means teacher. And I was like, hey, we're in Ohio. We don't have to say that. But <laughs> And I know I spent time working with the big three automotive companies here in the US, also doing a lot of benchmarking with some of the Japanese companies. And these are not we traditionally said Japan woke the U.S. up to, hey, this is how we're doing it. And that would be what we call lean. But it really went from being just a factory floor thing to becoming a supply chain thing to now every industry wants to say we're lean or using some of those concepts. We, but we always we still had data silos. So how do we how are companies managing all that? And it's interesting around value stream mapping and this kind of idea of learning to see. And the way I've always viewed it is you want to use information to understand the business and the performance to know what to go attack. And we've heard this from our customers where even when they describe leading today, they would say we what I love about Lean DNA is you're not just showing me your our problems or how good or bad we're doing. 
you're generating actions that help us get better. So the key thing about things like value stream mapping and learn to see, we that's almost like the starting point of improvement. It's, it helps you see things. And that's where I, where ERP and BI tools have been really effective. But where there's a gap right now, which is part of what we really focus on, is that execution. How do you go from understanding my problems where I'm a great supply chain operation for this factory or I'm a great procurement leader to understand that area, but then shifting that to where, what do I actually need to do to get better? What are those priorities that matter and how do I execute that? That's the step that we really tend to focus on that's sometimes missing where everybody's generating dashboards and visibility, but but that's really that first step. And that's a big part of even value stream mapping. It's about current state, future state, and then how do I execute to get there? And not everybody's always done that latter part, especially related to systems, Joe. Sorry. Yeah. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So, Getting back to it, I was going to say lean is a very, some of the, the very basic, it's very simple, but at the more complex, when you talk about a, a, a very, like a complex manufacturer, like an automotive company or HVAC systems or military can get very difficult. And I think when you say, oh, we have an ERP system, that's not enough. We have a TMS, not enough. WMS, not enough. There's a lot of, and you mentioned even the BI tools. If you don't have the lean methodology in your brain while you're developing those systems, you're not going to get there. And you were asking some of my background earlier on, Joe, and I didn't hit on it, but a lot of my passion came from that frustration because I was, I really started out as a mechanical engineer, even though I had a, a dual background, that was really my focus, building industrial processes and automation. And as I did that on the physical side, working with the systems team, I felt like there was a disconnect where we had a certain process or system we were trying to implement from a physical side and the systems guys didn't always understand the domain side of it. There were programmers taking direction, but they didn't really understand that system. And I would say that as time has gone on, it's gotten worse and worse where there's a bigger and bigger disconnect from the, the, the software coders that are right out of school, a few years out of school, building these systems and these people running operations or factories that have been there 30 years, there's just a difference. And those two areas don't always come together in, in an effective way. And that's been a lot of my passion and interest over the years is how to bring those two worlds together and bring the domain knowledge and the understanding of this business problem that people in factories every day working overtime trying to deliver products. How do we make sure that the systems that are being deployed are built to support them, not make things more challenging for them. Or when somebody says, you're just not using the system. That's something that always irks me because you, you mentioned lean about simplicity. And I would say it's still a lot of the foundation of lean came from the simple, the premise of make work easy for people. And my Japanese partners that hate using the Japanese words, by the way, like if they heard me use it, they would hate it because their their view of it is, <laughs> look, it's all about make work easy for people. And, and everything that we were always trying to do around lean was a faster setup, standardized oh, yeah. work, a, a system that was clear. So I think it comes back to make work easy for people and solve real problems. And 
this combination of systems and physical supply chain manufacturing, there is definitely a lot of complexity there. It's not an easy world today. And so we still have to take a step back and say, at the end of the day, though, we got to make it easier for people. And if we make it easy, they work faster and better. If we make it easy, they're more consistent. They follow a standardized workflow and we get good results. So we still want to chase that that goal in a way, Joe. We still want to try to, even though it's complicated, complicated systems and a lot of silos, the, the goal is like, how do we make work simple for people? And if we can do that, it will we'll be successful. Yeah. By the way, uh, when I was doing that lean facilitation, value stream mapping, I we you always do like a training in the beginning, or we did back then. And yeah, we brought in all the Japanese words and I despised it. And I used to make fun of my cohort who always would say, this is Muda, which literally means shit, which I was like, it's right. waste. Again, we're in Ohio, we're in Michigan, we're in Indiana doing, it makes no sense. And I felt like what you're doing is you're putting yourself on a pedestal as I'm the lean guy and I use a special language and I have special tools. I'm magical. And you commoners can try and touch it for a few minutes, but that's it. It's the wrong way to do stuff. And by the way, I started the logistics of logistics while I was running a little 3PL. And I didn't like the jargon that I would always hear. And so when I would talk to people, they'd say, our tariffs, I'd say, no, give me your costs. Tell me what you paid for this. That's it. I don't say tariffs or discounts. It's nonsense. It's gibberish talk. Give me your costs. <laughs> and and because that's just it's every industry develops a shorthand and a jargon, and I think it's useful to some extent, but it also causes jar- these silos to stay there because we all have our own little world that we live in. And, and to that point, so my Japanese partners, myself, would one hundred percent agree. Stay away from the jargon. It's modern manufacturing, simple concepts. And, and I know you're an educator, and I think that the the better and better you understand something, when you explain it to some to somebody, it's simple. And when it's hard to understand a concept, a lot of times it's not you, it's the person explaining it. And I always feel like I'm always learning and I have to get better and better. I'm, I have to do a better job myself, but it's always that goal that if I can make something simple to understand, that reflects my actually my understanding of something that could be very complicated. But when it's hard to understand, that's that means I probably don't understand it as well and I'm trying to explain it. So it's always a, a goal to keep it simple. Yeah, it's I think there's an Einstein quote where he says, if you can't un, if you can't explain a concept simply, you don't understand it well enough. And every once in a while, you'll hear somebody go on and on and use a lot of jargon and say, talk in circles. And you're like, okay, you can't explain it to me. Maybe you don't understand it well enough. Let's switch gears. So today's topic is leading inventory attack teams. First off, I'm assuming when we have an inventory attack team, they started it because there's a problem. What are some of those problems that would force, or not force, would compel a company to say, we need a lit inventory attack team. What would be some of those typical problems? It's a lot of what we're seeing, especially now is, let's say, head of operations, head of supply chain that's looking at performance. And what they're seeing is, why is my inventory going up and up? but my ability to ship on time is getting worse oh. and they don't understand it. So I would say that in the most simplest way, that's like a good indicator of what's happening. And we see that a lot and they don't really understand why, but it, it's something we, we would often call the paradox of stock. 
going back 20, 25 years. It's actually a, a relatively common phenomenon that has to do with this misalignment that we talked about earlier. But that's that's what we typically would hear a lot right now is that's the problem. And you see it as days of inventory is increasing, but ironically, they also see issues with delivery. So that's one thing. There's also this feeling of overwhelming data. People have all this information, they're, but they're constantly generating new information or changing graphs or they're not consistent from factory division. They're trying to create some standardized work. But I would say the problems are what I mentioned earlier on delivery and inventory. But when they then start to deploy data, they're not really getting the answers that they need to go act upon. And that's some of the challenges that we often see that are a good indicator for, hey, an inventory attack team is a way to approach this. Yeah. So when you say I have, so if I'm at, a, let's just say a factory or warehouse, and I say I have, I'll talk about sweaters. I have 20,000 sweaters here, which is, we normally have 14,000. So I have way more sweaters than I usually have. But when somebody says, hey, I need this sweater, we're saying, whoops, we don't have that one. We need to order it or we need to make it or whatever. And so it's so my on-time delivery starts to go down. And at the same time, I've got my another metric, which is my inventory carrying costs or my number of units. And that gets back to, we talked about it earlier, really understanding what you're selling. Because sometimes I say, yep, I've got this gray sweater. I got the green sweater, the blue sweater. And the blue sweaters are selling like crazy. The green sweaters aren't, the gray sweaters aren't, but we have a product mix that we made one third, one third, one third, and we didn't know any different when we started. But now the information of what's selling has to go back upstream. And in the meantime, I've got too many gray sweaters. (laughs) And we saw this a lot during COVID because we didn't know what we were going to be able to get from our suppliers, especially if they're overseas. So we ordered too much. And in the years or so after since COVID, we've had too much inventory, but it was the wrong inventory in a lot of cases. Am I right to say that? That's correct. And it's it, it also gets into this whole area of ERP and planning, which is critical. Like every company we work with, every company has an ERP system that we work with. Uh, and within that, there's different planning engines, right? And there's been a, a a growing reliance on those planning to predict the future. What is everybody going to order? And in the case of a sweater, if I'm just trying to predict sweaters and I make white sweaters, it's relatively easy. You're going to sell more in the wintertime than you are in the summer, right? You can predict it. But to your point, now I'm trying to predict colors and what button configuration and uh, patterns as it, as it grows in complexity, the ability to plan becomes harder and the planning engines, again, are still needed, but you have to still use those, which are critical, but you have to bring into play more around the execution and the collaboration so that when we see things changing day to day or week to week, how do you execute to those changes much quicker, especially by connecting the manufacturer and the suppliers? And that's where some of that starts to break down. And that's predicting at that option level is where things become challenging. And more and more, you have to start thinking in a shorter horizon. And how do I create that visibility at that factory to the supplier level, which is, again, part of the the big opportunity for what we see? Yep. So getting back to the leading inventory attack team. So I have a problem. Some of my metrics are way off. And who's noticing that? Is that the head of ops? Is that uh, head of supply chain? Who's the one who's saying, "I, I think I need to make some sort of intervention here? 
you'll, you'll, you're going to start seeing it at the VP of supply chain director of supply chain level. So it's a person typically running a supply chain for that operation. And that's where they're often challenged with get all the parts in when we need them, because it's not the operations or the engineering group, even though they may be late with the design or late scheduling production. It's always supply chain. That's that last person that gets yelled at when they don't have the right parts. So they're getting that pressure around delivery. But then when they order too much, it's, hey, our carrying costs are up and you're not hitting your DOI goal. So it's at that factory level supply chain leader there, but we also see it obviously at that head of supply chain because on our, on the conference calls when we're talking about working capital and things like that, it's shown up there as well. Yep. And by the way, typically, this is just the nature of it, is the problems are always downstream, right? So so the cause might be upstream, but the, so the guy who has the inventory in a, a warehouse, he's the one who someone's like, your inventory carrying costs are way up. You're like... It's not my fault. We built the wrong stuff. It's not the, I didn't, right? That's just, so if you want to solve a problem in the supply chain, this, it typically go upstream. So who would typically be on an inventory attack team when they, when they, when this VP of supply says, I've got a problem, we need to get a team together. Who is on that team and what is their charter? So there's really four levels to the team. There's the like the procure the buyer, the procurement individual. Typically, we call them a buyer. Different industries, and maybe a material planner in some cases. But you have the buyer. You have the level above them, which is the leader of that team that's responsible for the sites. We then have a third person, which is called the inventory attack team lead, that's now responsible across multiple sites. And then we also like to see a corporate sponsor, and that's typically your VP of supply chain. So VP of supply chain, inventory attack team lead, and then you have your site leader and then the buyers themselves. And that consists of the organization. And the idea is behind the inventory attack team, it's somewhat going back to keeping things simple. It's based on the idea that I may have a hundred or 500 actions I got to do today as a group, but how do I identify the five or 10 things each buyer at each site needs to do that's going to have the biggest impact on the business. And that's reflected in improving on time delivery while reducing your DOI. So what are those five or 10 things? What is DOI? Oh, day, days of inventory, turns or amount of inventory. DO, days of inventory is just a way to maybe normalize it across as demand goes up or down. If you do things right, you still want to have a certain days of inventory and ideally reducing it. So they, So they have those goals that they want to drive to. And so the goal is how do I identify the five or 10 actions they need to take each day that's going to have the biggest impact on that ability to deliver while reducing my inventory? And if I can successfully work those and complete those every day, it doesn't sound like a lot. It's five out of a hundred. But the key thing is that if those are the top five things to do, and I do that every day, now after a month, I've really made a difference. And it's rather simple, but it has an impact. And if you do that across multiple buyers across multiple divisions as a company really makes a difference. So that's the organization and that's some of the idea behind what are you trying to achieve. So how does Lean DNA help me do this? I know we're doing, we're talking about leading inventory attack teams and they, as you were talking about doing these five or 10 things, my first thought is what five or 10 things? Because I have a a list of 100. (laughs) So if somebody says, and by the way, I get it. I have days like that where I, I write everything down and I go, 
there it is, just the 800 things I have to do today. And my job is to prioritize those, but I have, it's all within me to make those decisions. I, I, some of these, am I wrong to say this? Some of the decisions they have to make are not intuitive. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it also may be you like to work with the supplier. So of all the actions you're going to do to go chase part shortages or or deal with excess inventory, you're going to work with the people you like to work with. And so you tend to call them, even though that may not be the, the right priorities for the business. So really the core to what LeanDNA does is we are a SaaS analytics platform that's specifically built to generate these what we call inventory actions that are prioritized based on, it could be based on value is one way we look at it. And we also look at uh, those parts that are gonna impact your ability to, to build a unit or, or ship an order. So we can look at both shortages or excess inventory. And the core to what our platform does is generate those prioritized actions. And then we actually meter them out. In other words, we may know that there's 300 things for you to do today, Joe, but we're gonna give you the five that we think are most impactful for the business. And then as you work those, we have the explainability is what I call it. We go back to making it easy. We want you to understand why that's a critical action. Because if I don't, and we have analytics and heuristics and machine learning built into our platform that helps prioritize that. But if I can't make it easy for you to understand the why behind it, you won't do it in many cases. That is so true because I've experienced that working in supply chain. Sometimes, especially when you get into inventory, Sometimes you find out, and I, I don't think I'm wrong to say this because I've talked to other people about it. They find out, oh, we should have never made a red sweater this year because our history tells us red sweaters don't sell. And somebody says, wait a sec, we've always made red sweaters. We've always sold the red. We never made money on the red sweaters for whatever reason. And I'm using sweaters because it's easy, but sometimes they're configurations of very complex systems like automotive or military stuff. But if you don't have that stuff on hand when it's needed, you get in trouble. But again, if you carry too much, you also get in trouble. That's right. So that, and, and I would say there's a lot of excitement around AI and analytics and in certain industries or certain applications, right? I'm looking for trends. What's my engagement score and confidence of maybe from a purchasing perspective for certain things you're going to order, there's like certain trends, right? And that's okay. But in in the application for supply chain, when you're really trying to assure delivery, if I stop the line, I, I'm going to be in trouble, right? So that's why, or if I order way too much because I did something wrong, again, I'm going to, it's going to be very transparent. So that's why the understanding of it's really important to that individual to make that easy. And if again, if they, one thing we've seen is if you can't do that, they won't take the action. That's been a big part of our platform is making that easy to understand. The other thing we've noticed too, is that when I give you, Joe, the 10 things to do today, but you can't do it for some reason, if I can't give you an outlet to communicate what we call unable to fix in the reason, it gets super frustrating because if I'm just telling you to do stuff, but you can't do it and I don't give you a way to communicate a around, that, yeah. and a workflow to, to describe it, it becomes a real, really frustrating. So that's another part of what we do. And, and by doing that, what, surprisingly, what we found is that if I'm generating these inventory actions for a buyer each day, and they can do 80% of them, but then the 20%, which they said unable to fix because the supplier said no, or we have a long-term agreement, surprisingly, what happened is when you then 
escalate that to the next level, which is part of the inventory tacting process. It's not just here's what you need to do each day, but part of that is to have a biweekly review every other week with that kind of executive sponsor and leader and say, here's all the unable to fix and the reason it costs all the sites. We've had some counties where 50% of those, once they got escalated to that executive, they were able to resolve them. They were able to actually cancel those orders and or delay those shipments because we didn't need it. And in some cases now that was able to translate into making stuff that they actually did need. But without escalating it, going back to the to that silo, if I just worked at that buyer silo and they just did what they can do, that's great. We solved 80% of them. But when I escalated that 20% or sometimes even greater, it could be 50% in some cases, they were not able to fix. They could, but it just required more collaboration, more support across the organization that exists, but it was never being surfaced up to them as a real problem. Um, so that's a big opportunity of the inventory attacking. It's not just do what you can do, but let's escalate these other areas and let's collaborate to get those other uh, things done. Because at the end of the day, it's better for the factory and it's actually better for the suppliers as well if we can just communicate in the right way. Yep. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Greenscreens. That's greenscreens.ai. Greenscreens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using green screens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy side and sell side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out Green Screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, I'm assuming that Lean DNA, if it's able to give me this direction, that they are getting information from different silos. So explain, do you have, is this a tech technique? Do I log into Lean DNA in the morning or is it connected to one of my other systems? How do I interact and how do I get my direction for the day as a inventory attack team leader? So it is a, a SaaS analytics platform that the buyers and leaders across supply chain are, are logging in every day. And we actually measure that and we look at that type of engagement. So they are logging in. But, but to your point, we are fully integrated with the existing ERP systems. It could be a planning system. So we are fully integrated. And then that allows them to go directly into Lean DNA and work directions. And that becomes their platform that, again, they're not working solely in Lean DNA. They're obviously still using the ERP for many other areas, but it is the platform that an inventory attack team user would typically log in first thing in the morning, go work those prioritized actions, complete that within the first hour, and then move on to their other activities. But at least they've worked those things that are critical day to day. And, and I would add to that, because we integrate with these existing systems, one of the key challenges in many companies is data, around data quality. And so we've invested a lot of time, not only on how do we integrate, but how do we create good quality, what we call like normalized unified data so that we have some companies that have 10 different ERP systems across 30 <laughs> sites. So it's really complicated. So the ability to connect to all those sites, normalize it. And so the inventory attack team across all those sites 
are able to look at the information in, a, in an entirely consistent way, whether it's an MOQ, a lot size, a purchase order due date. What's MO, MOQ? What's that? Minimum order quantity. So you have, in other words, there are constraints around supply chain that I'm trying to deal with that I, I, I may have bought 100, but I only needed five, but that's because of a minimum order quantity. And so we actually have analytics that look at those parameters that we call a, a plan for every part, sometimes referred to as a PFEP. But not only are we generating those inventory actions, but behind the scenes, we're looking at all the supply chain data and asking the question analytically, do you have the right target level? Do you have the right safety stock? Is your MOQ kind of aligned or do we need to maybe renegotiate that or relook at that with that supplier? So there's a lot of parameters that are defined that drives the way an ERP or enterprise resource planning system runs. And if you don't get those size right, that could be a leading indicator for other supply chain problems, actions through the inventory attack team. But in parallel, we have this kind of plan for every part, order policy kind of optimization taking place that asks the question, are we, but is everything set up right? And you can't look at that every day and you actually don't want to look at it every day, but once a month, we need to look at it. Maybe once a quarter, you do a, a bigger look at all those policies. And you can think of it, Joe, in a simple way is how do you tune your system and make sure all those policies are tuned so that the way I'm running my business day to day is more optimized. Right. I know some people are probably saying, oh, this is all so complex, but if you have inventory problems, you in the traditionally would say, I've, I, we're going to struggle through them ourselves, or we're going to hire a very expensive outside consultant to come in and they will get us straightened out. But that's a, like a one-time event. And th that's always been the challenge. And I mentioned to you before, it was almost like, we're going to go in, we're going to blitz this thing for the next two weeks. You get very expensive. And by the way, the reason they're very expensive, because it's very this is not easy. It's complicated. Everything's connected and it's not intuitive. So you need people like yourself who are very knowledgeable of how to fix these things. Now you're saying I've got a system that I, so I don't need the high height consultants and I don't, and it's not a one-time event. This is how I'm going to start running my business. So I know you, we're talking about inventory attack teams using lean DNA, but I'm assuming if they were using lean DNA the correct way from the beginning, they wouldn't need to move into this attack uh, teams, right? And that's true to some degree. I think the, the inventory attacking does create a process of how to think about priority. things. And once they learn <laughs> that, yeah, and, and it's still, even though you don't have to have an inventory attacking, not all of our customers have to use it or use that, but it's a good way to instill that process with a very data analytics prioritized workflow. And then once it's in place, you're right that the buyers now can just work day to day and it's becomes part of their DNA. And I, I would also say to your point about complexity, I think the best software products are very simple for the user on the front end, but they can actually be very complicated on the back end. And that's our job. And the, the products, if you ever use them that are complicated, like many whether it's a planning or sometimes even an ERP system, there's a lot of complexity there. That's because we were pushing a lot of that complexity to the user. So our goal early on was built on that idea that building great software means it's simple for the user, but we've done our job on the back end to deal with that complexity to make, to create that simplicity. And it's not easy, but that's the job of, I'd say a great uh, technology is to take on that complexity, to understand the domain, to understand 
the workflow, which is important. I think if I do great analytics and I'm showing all the data, but I haven't thought about the day in the life of a buyer, the day in the life of a production planner, how does a supplier need to think day to day in terms of how they work with the manufacturer? And if I haven't thought about that workflow, again, it's complicated. It's hard to use. But if you think about all those things, you can actually do really powerful things, but it's, it becomes very simple for the user because naturally they, they understand the problem. They know what they need to do. They're just having a hard time sometimes getting the information in a way that makes sense to them. And that's what we try to help do. Yep. You know what this, I'll use the analogy that I applies to my day to day. If I write a blog post for this, say for this interview, we will make a blog post for this on our website and push it out. Um, my people use Yoast, which is like toast, but it's spelled with a Y instead of a T at the beginning. And when you make that, Yoast, Yoast does the SEO optimization. So it'll tell you, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. So it'll give you a list. It'll give you red, green, yellow, and then the actions you need to take. I'm not a search engine optimization person. Not all my people are, but they are able to use Yoast and have a lot. Of, they're basically becoming, they're making that an SEO compliant article. And they don't have to learn all of the underlying tenets of SEO, which change every darn day. And that's the same thing here. I want to be able to use this tool, uh, even though I don't have 30 years background in lean and I don't know everything. It, it'd be, actually be probably too much information at this point. We This is why we use systems to take all this great data we have and tell us what to do. <laughs> And, it, and it's also by automating a lot of this workflow and the prioritization and that actions and, and, and doing that in a connected way with your systems and connected to your suppliers. I think what's exciting is for supply chain is this whole industry, as we talked about earlier, where 20 years ago, they just moved stuff around. They moved parts around. That was their, their job and nobody really paid attention to it. Now it's a really critical area. So if we can automate what we can automate and create that partization of the workflows and then free these individuals up, not for them to go anywhere, but to be able to shift their time to doing much more strategic work and more analytical work to make the operation better versus trying to, which trying to do a lot of spreadsheet manipulation oh, yeah. and emailing that out to 500 suppliers. How do we shift that to much more strategic work that's just not getting done today? It's not that people don't realize that they just can't get to it. And so that's the exciting thing, Joe, is to create this much more exciting world and environment for individuals. And one thing I would say about this industry is the number of people that have left it and gone to other industries because of the challenges the last couple of years is dramatic. Or I would go into factories where the longest tenured person supply chain is like nine months. And it's not that they're new to supply chain, but they're new to the company. So they just all moved around. So there's a huge need around the talent side to not only make it easier and support the challenges, but to make it obviously more exciting as well so that they can do more challenging things from a career. And I think all that's the the positive of what's happened the last couple of years. It's created a spotlight on supply chain and created a big opportunity for many individuals to to do things that they maybe didn't do before. Right. And again, this is my own experience. Is so many of these decisions, not only are they have unforeseen consequences, uh, unintended consequences, whatever you want to call it. But also they're just so counterintuitive. So I think also we are talking about something that is marginally important. Supply chains are the difference between success and failure for many industries, many companies. So you would, I know if you're talking about automotive, you're talking about the supply chains that brought the vaccines to us during COVID, or bring food to us every day. 
these are supply chains that they can't be a little rough around the edges. They have to be really good. So who do you work with? Again, one more time, who's the sweet spot for lean DNA? It, it is. We're very large into aerospace and defense. So we work with companies like Saffron, Spirit Aerosystems, Bombardier. We're in the majority of their factories, if not all their factories. So we're very large in that area. Industrial products with companies like Johnson Controls, Dover, Ingersoll, Rand are our big customers. And then in automotive, we work for groups that make like fire engine trucks, tanker trucks, different specialty vehicles. And obviously companies like uh, Terumo and medical devices. We actually, when uh, COVID hit, we were doing some work with them just to make sure blood machines were getting delivered on time for doing some work that was actually important for COVID. But what's common among all them, Joe, is they're discrete manufacturers where they're dealing with some degree of like assembly and complexity. And there's a typically a, a, a distributed supply chain that needs to be much more connected and prioritized and aligned with what the factories are trying to do. And all those industries are really dealing with those type of challenges. Yep. And, and what are the typical problems you solve for these companies? Like there was a good example. If you look at Aviation Week, uh, Spirit Aerosystem, because this is public, an article that came out in Aviation Week and it talked about how we reduced our inventory. I think it was by about 80 million while at the same time improving their on-time delivery from 70% to over 90%. And so Ooh. that's really what we do. It's, yeah, how do you deliver better? But you actually do with less inventory, which again is counterintuitive. Everybody thinks, well, deliver better, I got to buy more stuff. I need more inventory in the warehouse. And it's just, it's the paradox of stock. It's not true. It's all about alignment and making sure planning, procurement, and supply is aligned and it's not just aligned with a, a global plan that's distributed everywhere. It's about execution. And how do I deal with the kind of day-to-day -day changes and deal with these realities that happen every day and make sure everybody can stay aligned? And that's what we do through the technology. And the end result is Spirit's a great example of what can be achieved. And we've seen that with, with all our customers in different levels. But it's all about delivering better with a better use of, of inventory and allowing your teams to do that without having to work weekends. <laughs> I love that. When people engage with you saying they heard you today and said, Richard, get over here. I got all those problems. Come save me. How long to implement this? And is it a technology platform? Is, is there a training and orientation? Yeah, it's a great question. So we're typically fully deployed, fully integrated with your ERP in about six to eight weeks. So it's actually very quick. Most solutions like this are months, if not longer. So we're very quick to deploy. And we actually are full are, are connected and live typically within two to three weeks. But, but we have a deployment process where we go through a lot of kind of data validation, super user testing uh, during that process. But it's basically about six to eight weeks to be fully deployed and live. And we also typically will start in a couple of factories initially, show the value very quickly, and then expand over time. And so we've gone from, and some of our customers, we've gone from two sites to 65 sites um, over time by taking that approach of quick time to value, make work easy for people. And then when they see the value, they say, let's get this in more sites. And I think it's been our culture and the way we deploy early on, but it's also put a lot of pressure on what I said earlier is we gotta be, make work easy for people and then show results. And if that, if you can do that, then people want to use it more. If it's complicated or hard, for a lot of reasons, people find that it's there may be barriers to expand. I love it. I love it. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to your website, and any other links that you and your team give me. 
So I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Richard, people who are killing it in this space. Who else should I talk to? There's a couple, I would say some of our, the companies that we work with that are great. I think uh, Carrier uh, is actually one of our customers, Carrier, they're winning an award at the NextGen conference and they're great. Uh, So he'll be speaking there uh, as well. So some individuals from Carrier are going to be speaking there. And then we have Mandeep Sahoda is a great individual that I would interview. He actually worked for GE Aviation. He then went to work for Johnson Controls and headed up their, what they call their center of operational excellence, but for supply chain. And then he worked in operations. So he's an interesting individual because he bridges it. So he'd be a great individual for you to talk to as well. I love it. And then Jason Sinatra at H&I that makes furniture. So you think about... One minute we're working in companies that make aircraft, and then you have another company like H&I, which is like Han Furniture, that they make furniture, but there's a lot of complexity based on options and configurations and delivering to retail. So he's a, another great individual. And then we actually, MSA Safety makes safety devices, and they have a great group there as well that would be probably good for you to talk to. Sounds good. You've got a whole handful there. What conference will we see you and your team at? We just came back from ASCM, which is a supply chain conference, and we're going to be at NextGen, which is put on by an interesting group called Supply Chain Management Review. And they, they not only have speakers, but recognize leaders in supply chain. So we'll be there. I'm also on the board for the Association for Manufacturing Excellence, which is if you go to ame.org, it's again a volunteer organization. They put on a big conference. I think it's in Cleveland this year. And they have a mix of tours where you can actually see manufacturing supply chain with keynote speakers. And they've got working sessions across different tracks from Industry 4.0. They're talking about AI, machine learning, as well as supply chain and, and leadership as well. So we'll be at that conference throughout the year. So a couple of different events we've got there. Very exciting. nice. If you want to find Lean DNA, we'll get you to them. So again, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to your website, and any other things you and your marketing team give me. Richard, thank you so much. And thank you for going way over my time with you. <laughs> I apologize for that. It was a uh, no, great, exciting topic. So appreciate the opportunity, Joe. All right. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.